Hi there, my name is Dr. Libby and it is such a pleasure for me to join you today to talk about a topic that really is central to everyone's health and that is our digestion. Essentially, elimination and detoxification are the foundations of our health. So a great understanding of the way they work and the way to support them, I believe, is critical. My own personal work explores the body systems and our health with three prongs, the biochemical, the nutritional and the emotional. So I love to help people understand how each body system works, the different uh, processes that go on, and you'll learn particularly today about the digestive system and the liver. But then the next prong in my work is to explain the nutrients that are critical to those body systems working optimally. So what nutrients and foods support their functioning. And then I think I probably become some people's least favorite human for a brief period of time when I explain some of the substances that can actually take away from the optimum functioning of some of those body systems. And then the third prong to my approach is the emotional. I love to help people answer the question, why do you do what you do when you know what you know? And again, helping people get insights in those areas can be transformational when it comes to their health. So that lovely holistic approach. But let's get started today by looking at some signs that your body can give you to let you know that some of your detoxification systems need some love and support and attention. So firstly, one of the symptoms someone might experience is fluid retention. The body holds on to extra fluid for a bucket load of reasons. But one of them can be that when, if you can imagine that your, every cell in your body eats food and then excretes its waste, and the waste is excreted out into the lymphatic system, and the lymphatic system doesn't have a pump, so it's unlike your vascular system. So your vascular system, all the blood obviously is pumped throughout your body by your heart, but your lymphatic system doesn't have a pump. It will, it will move through movement, things like rebounding, massage, diaphragmatic breathing in particular will help stimulate great lymphatic flow. And you want that to occur because when the cells excrete their waste, you want that waste to move away from the cells and be detoxified and eliminated. But for too many people today who make poor lifestyle choices and lead a sedentary lifestyle, then the waste can sit outside the cells. Or sometimes there's just simply too much waste for a human's body to cope with, even though they may, might be making okay choices. And when the waste sits around the outside of the cell, the body will hang on to fluid to try to dilute the impact of that waste on the health of the cell. So like I said, fluid retention can occur for a multitude of reasons, but one of them can be because of that lymphatic system congestion. Skin breakouts and congestion can be another sign that the detox systems need some love and support because essentially the main roads for waste out of the body are the bowels and the urinary system. And the liver is intimately tied particularly to uh, the digestive system, particularly to the bowels, and the kidneys are tied uh, particularly, of course, to the urinary system because your urine is your blood having been filtered. So when the skin begins to get inflamed or red or congested, it can be a sign that it is now feeling like it has to step in to help the body eliminate waste. So we want to make sure that the elimination pathways of the body, the predominant ones, the bowels and the urinary system, are well supported and working optimally so the skin doesn't feel like it has to step in uh, and, and make a difference to that waste, waste excretion. But it can be another sign that those systems need support. We might experience sore, red or stinging eyes, waking constantly but consistently between 2 and 4 a.m., especially if we wake up hot, can be a classic sign that our liver in particular needs some support. Like for females, lumpy breasts that swell with their cycle, experiencing PMS, 
and a feeling like you could eat your arm off. So it's not just that you're hungry and it's time for lunch. It is if I don't eat right now, something really bad is going to happen to whoever is in my vicinity. It's that kind of feeling and that kind of intensity. You might wake up and you're not hungry for breakfast. Again, it certainly can be a sign that your detox systems need some support. But it can also happen because your dinner the evening before was way too big, of course. But if someone feels like coffee for breakfast, it can be something that people get into a habit of using to help their bowels move, for example. So uh, when they just feel like coffee for breakfast, it can be a sign, not always, but can be a sign that the detox systems need some support. Digestive system problems like constipation or, or diarrhea or irritable bowel syndrome, so intermittent bouts of both and bloating, an increase in body fat that can't be explained for any other reasons, cellulite, and cellulite will occur when the detox and elimination mechanisms and processes in the body, when they can't keep up with the load, the body cannot leave the waste present in the blood because that can damage us and lead to ill health. And so the, the body has to move those problematic substances away from our vital organs, which other than our brain are all housed inside our torso. So the, the body will move it away, move those problematic substances away and store it in the fatty tissue, typically uh, on the tops of the thighs, for example, because it's, it's out of the way there as far as uh, potentially having any ramification on the organs that keep us alive. So cellulite can be another sign that the detox systems need some support. Low energy, poor energy, and also someone who newly starts to snap. So they're very short uh, with their temper. And it's something, there was a turn of phrase uh, a long time ago that my grandmother used uh, to explain when someone had a congested liver. Where if that, she used to say that if she noticed someone who would snap all of a sudden, she would make a comment that uh, their liver might not have been working appropriately. It's a traditional Chinese medicine concept, uh, again, so because in traditional Chinese medicine, they very much believe that every organ has uh, an emotion that has a seat there, and the liver is the seat of anger in traditional Chinese medicine. So if, if you uh, have always been quite calm and centered and uh, now newly have this little short, sharp temper, it can be a little sign that the liver needs a bit of love. So before we go in and look at the way the liver detoxifies, let's explore the digestive system itself because digestion alone can have such a big impact on someone's quality of life, their energy, whether they sleep restoratively, whether they're able to use body fat as a fuel source, whether hormones are balanced. It truly is the foundation of our health. So I want you to imagine that the digestive system is like a big long tube that begins at your mouth and ends where the waste is excreted from your body. And when we first put food into our mouth, what are we supposed to do with it? We don't always, but what are we supposed to do with it? Obviously, chew it. <laughs> but too many people today inhale their food. And before they know it, the food's in, they might be in a hurry or just not present uh, to the food, not conscious of the way that they're eating. And it might be choo-choo or yum, it's yummy, so I've got to swallow it straight away. And then another mouthful goes in. And we can end up with half-chewed food and brand-new food all in our mouth all at once and swallowing uh, food that really hasn't been chewed enough. And it makes its way then down our esophagus and it lands in our stomach. And our stomach, uh, is around when it's empty, is around the size of our own clenched fist. So it's not that big. <laughs> so I want you to think about what happens when we pile our plate really high, which a lot of people do in the evenings these days. That little stomach's got to expand significantly to cope with all of that food ending up in there. And it has to sit in the stomach for around 30 minutes before it can continue uh, on its digestion uh, journey. So we can ask a lot of our stomach when we eat too much too quickly. 
But anyway, we've swallowed our food, it's now landed in our stomach, and the stomach makes acid as one of the substances to help the digestive process. So a good way to imagine it is that your food is made up of a big long string of circles, almost like pearls on a necklace. And the chewing process has begun to break the pearls apart, but now the stomach acid goes to work further on that and does the chop, 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 chop mechanism to really pull those pearls apart, to really break those circles apart uh, and really continuing that digestive system process. And the stomach acid has an ideal pH of around 1.9. There's a bit of variability there, but around 1.9, which is so acidic if it touched your skin, it would burn you. But it doesn't because it's nicely housed inside the stomach uh, which is well equipped to deal with such acidic conditions. It has to be that way for us to have our digestive fire. However, a habit uh, for too many people is that they'll drink water with their meals and water has a pH of seven or greater, seven being neutral pH and higher than seven being uh, alkaline. And the more minerals that are present in the water, the more alkaline it will be. So that's wonderful and hydration is very important. However, when we swallow a liquid that has a pH of 7 or greater into an area that's supposed to have a pH of 1.9, we can risk potentially diluting that stomach acid right down, taking away its power to do the chop-chop-chop mechanism that's so critical to establishing the pH gradient of the digestive system and establishing fantastic digestion. So you can hear already some key steps to help support great elimination and detoxification includes slowing down and chewing our food incredibly well. Now for some people that's going to involve a lot of mindfulness and a decision to really connect with their food, feel grateful for their food and to be very aware of how and what they're eating. It might mean that you've got to put your knife and fork down between each mouthful uh, to stop yourself from hoovering it in, from, from throwing it into the mouth again too quickly. So chewing your food very well and slowing down and drink water between meals rather than with meals to really allow the stomach acid to do its critical work. You can also potentially help stimulate digestion by using things like lemon juice in warm water or apple cider vinegar because that can really help get that process, that help that get that process going. The food then moves from the stomach into the small intestine and it's anatomically on someone that's right in the middle of their abdomen and it's, it's in the small intestine where the nutrients that are there in the food move across from the digestive system and into the blood. That's the process of absorption and it is critical to life, our ability, our ability to absorb those nutrients. So we absorb all of the nutrients out of our food there in the small intestine except for a few, so vitamin B12 and alcohol for example are absorbed directly from the stomach and into our blood supply, which is why if someone drinks alcohol on an empty stomach they tend to get tipsy very quickly because it's into their blood within about five minutes. But the majority of nutrients are absorbed out of the digestive system and across into the blood uh, in the small intestine. And the, the little strings, if there are any still there, continue to be chopped down by the enzymes that are secreted all throughout the small intestine. And the ancillary organs, the pancreas for example, helps foster that process as well. Then the food's going to cross from the small intestine into the large intestine. To do that, it's got to move through the ileocecal valve. And for some people, especially if constipation has been a problem for them in the past or is currently, or if they've had what I call a parasite infection, they might have traveled uh, and had an upset tummy and their digestion hasn't been the same since, they'll often describe getting pain uh, low down on the right-hand side. And quite often it's in the region of the ileocecal valve. So they can, again, provide some insight into what's going on for people. But as the food moves across into the large intestine, housed in there are about three to four kilos of bacteria. 
in every adult. Uh, you want, there's good guys and bad guys, obviously, with our gut bacteria, and we want way more good guys than bad guys. As part of my PhD in biochemistry, there was a microbiology component, and uh, I worked with children with autism through that process, and their parents uh, sent me uh, little cooling containers that contained fecal samples of the children so that I could actually plate it out so we could see what was actually growing. And when, although that might not sound like a fun process, <laughs> it was an incredibly insightful process uh, that allowed us to get a, a really great insight into what was going on with uh, some of these children with autism and changing the gut bacteria profiles uh, for in, in, a, in numerous different health conditions can make such a significant difference uh, to what then uh, people experience and their quality of life. So our gut bugs play such a big role, not only in digestion, but in our overall health. But back to the digestive system story, so when the food arrives into the large intestine, the bugs just want to ferment whatever we give them. And again, come back to the circle analogy, the pearl analogy, the bugs love it when we give them something that's one circle or maybe two circles in size. But if things have gone awry further up the digestive tract, what can end up in there might be still six or seven circles joined together. And again, all the bugs know to do is to ferment that. And with any fermentation process, there can be a whole lot of gas excreted. And what that will tend to lead to for many people is a bloated stomach. And if you're a female, you won't let go of that gas. Boys don't seem to have that same problem. So you'll hold on to it and then go home uh, through the afternoon. Uh, you'll hold on to it and go home that evening then uh, often with a very uncomfortable stomach. And it can really mess, particularly with a woman's psychology. So we tend to think straight away if our, our stomach our low down is bloated, our abdomen's bloated, we tend to think it must be a large intestine problem. But I hope you can see from the way I've explained that that quite often things might go awry further up the digestive system and that may need attention that will then correct the pH gradient and correct that entire digestive system process by working on things further up with the strategies I mentioned a moment ago. So when it comes to our liver, I could truly talk to you underwater about this for hours. It's such an extraordinary organ. It does a lot of, plays a lot of different roles in the body. One of them obviously is uh, detoxification. And detoxification gets a lot of conflicting press out there, a lot of confusing press. And it's essentially a transformation process. It's a change process. And the, one, of the, one of the liver's jobs is to take substances that if they were to accumulate in your body, the liver has to take those substances and change them into something that is less harmful so you can then excrete it and then it's gone from your body forever. It's a process that we want to happen very efficiently inside of us all the time. So it's a process that goes on all the time, but it's the lifestyle choices that we make that can potentially interfere with how efficiently our liver does its critical detoxification work. So the mechanisms through which the, the uh, body detoxifies, one of the main ones is what we simply call the phase one and phase two liver detoxification pathways. But before we describe that, I want you just to contemplate some of the substances that can interfere with liver function. When I'm speaking to an audience, I'll often get them to shout these out. <laughs> and alcohol is nearly always the first one out of uh, an audience's mouth these days. So uh, many people today recognize that alcohol is essentially a liver loader. It has to be changed before we can excrete it. The human body actually can't excrete alcohol. if we can. It's poisonous to us, and I don't say that lightly. When we take it in, the liver has to change alcohol into acid aldehyde. And if our body isn't able to get rid of the acid aldehyde effectively, it will accumulate and it's actually the acid aldehyde that can lead us to get the headache uh, the next day if there's been overconsumption the day or evening before. 
Caffeine is another liver loader, synthetic substances, so that might be medication or pesticides. We've also got to consider what we're putting on our skin. We're crazy if we think we don't absorb things through our skin. We've only got to look at the way nicotine patches work to realise what goes onto our skin can, be, can have a direct route to our blood supply. The trans fats in processed cakes and biscuits and muesli bars and deep fried food, the refined sugars, and also viruses. So if someone's had glandular fever, uh, also called mononucleosis, uh, the Epstein-Barr virus essentially, cytomegalovirus, herpes for example, hepatitis. So some of those big infections can have a lasting impact on liver function and people may do much better. Uh, of course it's highly individual, but they may do much better with some ongoing liver support. But it's not just the substances that we can choose to have or avoid uh, in our life that asks the liver to step up and do its critical detoxification work. There are substances that the body makes itself, like estrogen and cholesterol in both men and women, that require detoxification before it can be excreted. So the best way to imagine it, I'm actually going to use my hand to explain this to you. So with, uh, with any substance that arrives at the front door of the liver, there's one road into the liver. So if you could actually see it biochemically, there's one road in. It's why my hand is going to make a great analogy for this. There's one road in, and then there's the second phase of detoxification, which is the five roads out. So it's handy, I've got my five fingers. So whether it is something you've consumed or the body's own cholesterol or estrogen, it arrives at the front door of the liver. Let's pick on cholesterol initially. It arrives at the front door of the liver and undergoes its first uh, stage of change, which means something's been added to it. It then needs to go down one of the pathways in the second stage of detoxification, and once it's done that, been changed again and then it can be excreted and it's gone from your body forever. So that's a process you want to happen very efficiently. But what happens for too many people over time is that these phase two pathways get congested like traffic on a motorway, like traffic on a freeway. So when the cholesterol arrives, it undergoes its first stage of change and then it hits a roadblock because the liver will always prioritise what it's dealing with. It will always prioritise the glass of wine that someone has had every night for the last 20 years will always prioritise that over something that the body has made itself, like in this case, cholesterol. So when the cholesterol undergoes its first stage of change and is sitting here in the middle of the liver, if there's nowhere for it to go, it can't stay here in the middle of the liver because there's more rubbish constantly coming in the front door. So the liver releases it. It's almost like there's a trapdoor. It releases it out of the liver back into the blood supply and we start to recycle our cholesterol. That is one mechanism through which blood cholesterol can go up and up and up. Remembering that when we have a blood test for cholesterol, 80% of it has been made by the liver and the diet contributes about 20% to that number, science currently suggests. So what I say to you is not to blow my own trumpet, but simply to show you the power of this. In the 16 years I've been working with people, there is not one person whose blood cholesterol I haven't lowered back into the normal range just by focusing on taking care of this gorgeous and very critical organ. Not one. And the ratios, the, the healthy ranges for cholesterol are different in each country. And I know there's huge question marks about whether it is a risk factor uh, for heart disease. But what we do know is that we don't want it to be sticky. We know that cholesterol is critical for building all of our steroid hormones. It's critical for brain function. It does so many important jobs in the body. Uh, but we want to be able to have very healthy cholesterol metabolism for lots of reasons. So we want to make sure that the liver is able to excrete the cholesterol once it's done its job in our body. Oestrogen does exactly the same thing. First stage of change, ideally second stage of change, then excretion, then it's gone. 
But what happens for too many people today is it gets to this midpoint and can't go any further. And like I said, it can't stay here in the middle of the liver, so the liver will release it back out into the blood. And it is this slightly changed form of estrogen that's been found to be so highly linked to women's reproductive cancers. A study was published showing that it was found to be up to 400 times higher in women with estrogen-sensitive breast cancer. So again, taking care of this organ can mean, mean a different quality of life for someone, increased longevity, way better energy, and also better use of body fat as a fuel. Because when the liver over time uh, becomes congested, sometimes globules of fat can take over where an active liver cell was once living. I like to describe it, I like to get people to imagine their liver is made up of billions of little tiny circles and inside each one of the circles is a little mouse on a treadmill and he's pedaling really hard, working really hard to do all that critical detoxification work and when he gets overwhelmed day after day with just way too much work, he falls off his bike and sometimes he has a buddy that can come along and hop back on the bike and keep going but eventually he runs out of buddies so eventually our liver cells don't replicate and replace themselves and so a globule of fat will take over that position. And historically, not that long ago, globules of fat were really only found in what we called alcoholic fatty liver disease, which was seen in chronic alcoholics. But now, unfortunately, there's a new disease been, been coined, which is called non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, and we're seeing it in teenagers, people who have never consumed alcohol. And the amount of fat that's accumulating there in the liver is potentially simply from the amount of processed food that these children have consumed in their relatively short lifespans up until now. That's one of the big hypotheses around that at the moment. So that can have, of course, a very big ripple effect, dire consequences to the liver not being able to do its critical detoxification work. So uh, the sources of some of these liver loaders in our world, it can vary, of course, from country to country, but just to give you a rough guide of where, in this case, caffeine might appear, you can see that plunger coffee can have a very large amount of caffeine. A shot of espresso will have on average about 80 milligrams of caffeine. But remember that so many cafes today serve a double shot straight up. That's just standard. So you're getting 160 milligrams of caffeine straight away before you've given any thought to it. And that's how too many people today start their day. Too many people warm up with caffeine and then cool down with alcohol. And it can be a really vicious cycle that, that we get into. Uh, so again, tea will contain some caffeine. Tea also contains though theanine, which can buffer the effect of the caffeine uh, having such a strong impact. But people must, re must know though that it still contains caffeine. And for a lot of people, they are incredibly caffeine sensitive and it can lead to that regular overproduction of just way too much adrenaline, which leads to a big cascade of, of, uh, of health consequences. Of course, uh, something that's changed certainly in the last 10 or so years is, is we've seen the increased consumption of energy drinks, which can have caffeine levels through the roof. And again, I'm deeply concerned uh, when I walk down the street and see people consuming them, especially teenagers, given that between the ages of about 12 and 18, 50% of our adult bone mass is laid down and caffeine interferes with the body's ability to take up calcium out of the blood into the bone matrix. So I've deep concerns for what, what may potentially unfold for children who are teenagers today and what their bones are going to look like in the not too distant future. So I just want people to be aware of where the caffeine is uh, and to make, make changes that are appropriate for them. And then of course alcohol, I truly believe that if we drink alcohol every day it is way too much. Uh, again, it asks so much of our liver, 
uh, to do that critical detox work and it can really mess with not only digestion, our utilisation and absorption of nutrients, it can play havoc with sex hormone balance for both men and women, it can lead to increased body fat, decreased liver function, dehydration, poor quality sleep uh, and of course then the social implications uh, potentially on relationships. So. Again, I just want people to be honest with themselves about how much they have and the impact it's having on their life. And again, hopefully be supported to make great changes in that area when, when it is appropriate. We talk about standard drinks in medical terms and a standard drink is actually 10 grams of alcohol. Again, this is going to vary from country to country, but it's around one bottle of 4% beer. It's a 30 ml nip of spirits. It's about 170 ml of sparkling wine or champagne. But it's about 100 mils of wine, which if you, a lot of people drink out of great big buckets today, really big wine glasses, and essentially it's just a couple of sips in the bottom of that glass is 100 mils. So many people uh, regularly overconsume wine in particular because their first pour is just simply way too big from a health perspective that we're talking about here. Many of the heart foundations around the world have recommendations on how much alcohol is okay to drink. Their current position statement is that it's okay for men to have four standard drinks a day as long as they're having two alcohol-free days a week, and for women, two standard drinks a day as long as they're having two alcohol-free days per week. But I know that if I drank like that, I couldn't do my job. I couldn't live my mission in this world. I wouldn't have the energy and the vitality that I have, and I treasure those things. And I believe when we regularly overconsume alcohol, it takes the edge off our energy and vitality, and it can take the edge off our greatness. So I would love people to explore why they feel like they need to regularly overconsume it. And please hear what I just said. It's the regular overconsumption that can be so damaging. The Cancer Councils, though, the World Cancer Research Fund, they have a very clear position statement on alcohol as well, and it doesn't get very much press. But their position statement is that we need to limit alcoholic drinks to no more than one standard drink per day for women and include a minimum of two alcohol-free days a week. So they're saying less than one is okay. So that means less than 100 mils of wine. Some of the cancer organisations around the world have gone even further than that and said that if you have a family history of cancer, there's no safe level of alcohol for you to consume, given that research has shown uh, that it is so highly linked to uh, some of our very big cancers in the world. But again, please hear this. I'm not being a party pooper by any stretch. It's that regular overconsumption uh, that really needs to be explored and, and supported to help people decrease that. Be honest with yourself about how it affects you and how much you're having. And if you drink it every day, I truly believe it's too much. So I love to help people get in touch with why they're doing it, why they feel like they need it. Is it to relax? Is it because it's the time of day when they connect with the person they love the most in the world? And they've made those things about the alcohol. When there are, you could pour yourself a drink of anything and still sit down and have a lovely conversation with someone you treasure. For a lot of people, it's the time of the day where they give themselves permission to stop. It might be the first time they've sat down all day, but again, you can do that uh, with, with a glass of water in your hand and, and contemplate the day you've just experienced, for example. When people say that it's for relaxation, I understand that, but there are many ways uh, that we can relax. It's just that people are choosing that road of alcohol and we want to support them to find other ways to be able to wind down throughout their day. And hopefully we can support them to not get that amped up that they feel like they need something to take the edge off going into the evening. So understanding the why I think is critical in being able to support people uh, in a way that's, that's, that resonates for them. So to wrap up, what do we want to do here? We want to make sure people are using their bowels every day 
twice a day would be wonderful, but at least once a day. So they're incredibly important questions, I think, to ask people. Do you use your bowels every day? And I know it's not fun to talk about, but they need to, the stools need to be formed sausages and very easy to pass. I know lots of people giggle when we start to talk about it, but it, it gives great insight into what's going on for someone uh, when there are challenges with their digestive health. And getting this right uh, is so critical to all the other body systems uh, being able to work optimally. We want to decrease liver loaders if they're regularly being overconsumed to help people understand alternatives, help people understand why they're doing it and what the liver loaders actually are. I love to explain to clients how the liver actually works because it gives them a different, the motivation comes from a different place when they understand how things work inside their body and that can be a different, a different uh, motivation if you like to make some changes. We want to increase the nutrient density uh, of people's diets uh, to really make sure those liver detox pathways are supported. We know that a high plant diet is incredibly powerful at supporting particularly those phase two pathways all the plants, but especially those brassica uh, family of vegetables. The liver love, loves beetroot, it loves lemons. So all those beautiful plant foods contain substances that are just so critical to these processes being optimal inside the body. When we eat real food, it's not just about what we get, which is all those incredible compounds that are unique to plants. It's about the nutrients we get, but it's also about what we miss out on. Some of those fake food ingredients, uh, artificial colours, flavours, preservatives, uh, which of course we want to really minimise or, or help people to omit from their diets. So making sure these elimination and detoxification processes in the body are working optimally I think is so critical to people's experience of life and to what's going on with their health. It is certainly, in my opinion, the place to start when we're wanting to make a really big difference for someone. So I sincerely hope you've learned something. Please remember that life is precious and that you are precious and to treat yourself accordingly. Thank you. Elimination and Detoxification with Libby Weaver, PhD. Do your detox systems need love? Fuel retention, skin breakout and congestion, sore, red, or stinking eyes. Waking consistently between 2 a.m. to 4 a.m. Lumpy breasts that swell with your circle. PMS, feeling like you could eat your arm off. Do your detox systems need love? Not hungry for breakfast, craving only coffee in the morning. Digestive problems, constipation and IBS, increase in body fat, cellulite, poor energy, short temper, easily angered. Digestion, liver, detoxification or detoxification pays 1 and phase 2 enzyme systems, antioxidant defense mechanism, recycling of cholesterol and estrogen, what interferes with your liver function, alcohol, caffeine, synthetic substances, for example medication, pesticides, trans fat, refined sugar, infection, for example virus, caffeine, source, Plunger coffee, espresso, instant tea, green tea, decaf, dark chocolate. Alcohol, one standard drink, 10 grams of alcohol, one bottle, 4% beer, 30 ml nip spirit, 170 ml bubbles, 100 ml wine. Current Heart Foundation Recommendations 
Men, 4 standard drinks per day plus 2 AFDs per week. Women, 2 standard drinks per day plus 2 AFDs per week. Alcohol, White Cancer Research Fund, uh, fund. Limit alcohol drinks to no more than 1 standard drink per day for women and include minimum of 2 AFDs alcohol 3 days per week. Alcohol, be honest with yourself about how caffeine and alcohol affect you. If you drink alcohol every day, it is too much. Support elimination detoxification. Digestive health, decrease level liver loaders, increase nutrient density, real food, also about what you're not eating like processed foods. Environmental toxins. When modern living has its conveniences, it has also introduced potentially harmful chemicals to the environment that may affect our health. These chemicals are often found in the clothes we wear, the foods we eat, the walls in our living spaces, and even the air we breathe. Environmental toxins not only threaten our health, but are likely to impact the health of future generations as well. Manganese Manganese is a free element found in nature as well as a metal with various industrial purposes. Manganese is stiffens aluminum and prevents corrosion, making it an important element in materials like soda cans, manganese concentration in the air and groundwater rise with increased industrial activity. Although manganese is an essential mineral, like meaning it's necessary for human survival, it can be toxic in high concentrations. Your water may contain manganese if it's discolored, brownish red, stains plumping pictures, and or has an unusual taste or odor. If you suspect your water might contain manganese, get it, get it tested by a state-certified laboratory. If levels are above the standard safety levels, consider using a high-quality filtering system. Arsenic Arsenic is a natural, naturally occurring element that can be found with thin organic and inorganic forms. Arsenic found in soil, the environment, and the ground is absorbed by crops and enters the food supply. The inorganic compound is a known human carcinogen and has been found in drinking water, rice base, food products, seaweeds products, and certain brown of juice, although certain types are banned or restricted in some regions of the world. Arsenic can still be found in poultry fed and pesticides. To avoid arsenic containing pesticides, opt for organic procedure and choose poultry from procedures who do not use artificial feeds additives. Fluoride Fluoride is commonly added to water supplies and toothpaste to prevent dental caries and enhance bone growth. It ha in high concentration, it can be the exact opposite effect. So many caution to use 
eat sparingly. Bottled water is often fluoridated, prompting many people to opt for non-fluoridated options when possible. To find out if your water is fluoridated, call your water supplier or use an at-home kit to test levels. High-quality water filters can be installed on your faucet to filter excess levels of fluoride and other minerals in water supply. Chlorapyrifos is a commonly used insect killer classified as a high or very high toxic for birds and most fish and modernly toxic for mammals. Despite its recognition toxicity, it remains a widely used pesticide for both food and non-food crops. By opting for organic produce, you reduce the risk of ingesting harmful pesticides. DDT DDE is a commonly used pesticide that was banned in United States in 1972. As a result of overuse before the ban, DDT can still be found in lingering in the environment in the United States, while other regions of the world continue to use it. DDT breaks down into toxic byproducts called DDE and DDD, which consequently accumulate in the environment and within fat stores of organisms that ingest it. Animals that eat animals are more likely to build up levels of DDT. Many people choose to avoid or minimize consumption of animal fat and purchase products produced to avoid ingesting this toxic pesticide. Tetrachlorothylene or PERS is a chemical commonly used to dry clean clothing and decrease metal because of its excellent solvent properties. When the vaporous chemical is inhaled, various health problems can be arise. Bringing the Environment Protection Agency to classify this chemical as likely to be carcinogenic to humans. There are organic to dry cleaning services available that do not use this chemical. If you think you may be exposed to PERS in your workplace, don't be afraid to proactive and ask to speak with someone who can discuss safety measures. Lead is naturally occurring metal that is found deep within the Earth's crust. Lead is found in the paint of many older homes, homes in drinking water that flows through old lead pipes, or fixtures and in contaminated soil. When ingested, lead can build up in the body over time and become toxic. In your home was built prior to 1978, you may want to test the paint and dust for lead or for lead as it was popular in building construction in 1970s. Helpful safety measures can include staying away from chipping or peeling paint and avoiding top water in these older homes until it's tested. Mercury Mercury is a chemical once used in thermometers, barometers, and laxative. The low cost of mercury-containing dental filling has kept them on the market. 
despite the high cost on health. Don't be afraid to request non-mercury fillings from the dentist or to ask to have old mercury filling replaced. Another form of mercury that people are most exposed to it is organic compound methylmercury which is found in the fish and shellfish. Fish absorbs these toxins in their water environment and it builds up in the bodies over time. Certain fish and shellfish accumulate mercury more than others, resulting in varying levels of toxins among different types of seafood, which with the highest level of mercury include mackerel, marlin, orange ruffling, tallfish, shark, soy fish, and tuna, and should be consumed in limited quantities. Toluene is a clear colorless liquid that serves as an important organic solvent. It can be found naturally at low levels in crude oil or prepared synthetically. It is added to gasoline to improve the octane rating. The levels to which it can be composed before spontaneously igniting. It is also used to make nylon and plastic soda bottles and added to paints adhesive cosmetic perfumes and antifreeze frequent inhalation of large amount of these toxins can be harmful exposure to the toluene can be avoided by taking proper precautions such as wearing a safety mask when around wet paint paint thinners or glues referring from breathing and gasoline or car exhaust and experimenting with chemical-free cosmetic and non-toxic nail polishes. Ethanol or ethyl alcohol is commercially produced by fermentation of sugars for beverages or synthetically or for industrial needs. It's used to make everything from perfume to alcoholic beverages to explosives. Even though ethanol can be consumed in alcoholic beverages, its toxins to the human body in large quantities. Alcohol is also or almost immediately absorbed into the bloodstream that can be especially harmful to the fetus development. It is known whether there is a safe amount of alcohol that can be consumed during pregnancy. Currently, women who are pregnant or wish to become pregnant are encouraged to avoid any intake of alcohol. Polybrominated dipenyl ethers or PBDES are man-made chemicals used as flame retardants in many plastic, foam, and fabric consumer products. Although they can be helpful to make products like furniture and other household items less flammable, the toxins are not chemically bound to the materials they're added to allowing them to easily infiltrate their surroundings when purchasing new furniture some people choose to opt for less flammable fabrics and materials like leather wool and cotton to avoid this chemical polychlorinated bipenyl or pbs pbs are synthetic organic chemicals that are once popular in industrial and commercial 
applications due to their non-flammability and chemical stability. They were banned from being manufactured in 1979 because of their recognized toxicity. There are still products and materials that may contain PCBs such as transformers, oil-based paints, plastics, carbon copy paper, and floor finishes. When released into the environment, PCBs can, tra can travel long distance from the site of contamination and accumulated or accumulate on plants, food, crops, and within the organisms that ingest them. Highly concentration have been found in farm-raised salmon and marine mammals to avoid PCBs off for organic procedure and wash well before eating. sleep 
which of course can lead to overeating and less exercise. So we really need to think about this holistically and try to identify these red flags and sources of uh, challenge for the basic professional in order to really stop this vicious cycle from happening. So now that we've talked a little bit about um, understanding the psyche of a basic professional and what the lifestyle is like, what is the first thing we do as a health coach? Right? What do we do before we even meet someone who comes in uh, to meet with us? Well, in my opinion, what we should do is we should gather as much information from that person as possible. We give them a questionnaire. So now, what is it in this questionnaire? And before I get into what's in this questionnaire, I think gathering as much information as you possibly can is so important because you're able to identify any red flags and you're able to make the most informed decisions when you're creating a, a plan of action for this person. And so there are five areas I think that we really need to focus on when we're gathering information. The first area is the medical history. Of course, you can just go to a doctor's office and see the basic questionnaire, uh, basic medical questionnaire. But what are, there, what are some of the things that are particularly important that we really want to keep focus on. I think one is injuries. Right? We want to make sure we can identify any injuries this person has. Medications. Medications, of course, can have a significant impact on metabolism, on the ability to um, control eating, heart problems, and um, other issues in the immediate family. During the questionnaire, we might actually have to figure out in the medical history, you know what? probably are not qualified to help this person. We need to refer them out to a medical doctor. And if you feel uncomfortable, the person has too many issues, like that's a really good thing to do as a health coach. Another thing is you might want to get a medical release if you feel a little uncomfortable just to get a doctor's opinion or even call up the doctor. So I think medical history is really important. And this questionnaire, it's a, it's a checklist and you do not want to skip it. A second is the exercise history. And so what do we want to know about their exercise? Well, I think we want to know everything. What are they doing? When are they doing it? Where are they doing it? Um, we want to get a sense for the, the entire exercise program. But what happens if they're not exercising? Then we want to figure out, okay, well, what are the barriers to exercise? And what do you think are like the most common barriers to exercise? Time? Exercise is not enjoyable, I just don't like it. Lack of results. I, I'm working really hard, but I'm not getting any results. Why would I do it? Um, they don't know what to do. I mean, I think if you walk into a gym, it can be a pretty intimidating place. You have absolutely no idea what all these machines do. Uh, and then sometimes you're just too tired. It goes back to the kind of lifestyle. You're working long hours. It's stressful. You're not getting enough sleep. There's just no way I'm going to go to the gym because I'm just really tired. So these are the types of things we want to identify as we're trying to help this person. Next, the third thing we're going to talk about is nutrition habits. And just a couple things, I think, in terms of uh, the habits that we want to consider, especially in, uh, for busy professionals, is ordering in versus cooking versus eating out at restaurants. What's the ratio look like? I think for a lot of people, you're going to figure out that very few people cook. Another thing to think about is, is alcohol. If we don't ask that question, how many alcohol, how much alcohol are you drinking per week, you might miss like a major, majorly important uh, aspect to this person's nutrition habits. Because they could be eating perfectly, and then they're having 10, 20 drinks uh, a week. It can completely change everything. Uh, and then what is it? What does their nutrition look like on the weekends versus the weekdays? And it's usually very different. It's called the weekend spiral. It's like everything is going great during the week, and then all of a sudden things kind of spiral out of control. So these are some of the things we want to think about in terms of habits. Uh, next is the lifestyle. I think this is kind of a catch-all uh, bucket, and we can explore the career and personal questions. It's very important to really dig deep. And so with career, 
Juan, you ask, okay, well, do you find your job stressful? What about your job is stressful? If we don't ask these questions, we might miss the root cause of whatever challenge they're facing. So that's why, again, the questionnaire is so important because any of these questions, you can find the root cause that's creating this vicious cycle. And then also, personally, we should ask personal questions. It's absolutely not off the, it's, it's completely okay to ask a personal question. Does your partner support your decision to try to get healthier? Because if the partner is like, oh, I do whatever I want, and I'm going to like eat whatever I want in front of it's it's going to be a huge obstacle. I, I would say it's going to be the biggest obstacle. So we should definitely ask personal questions. You know, do your, what are your friends like? What are their habits like? And of course, we want to ask questions about sleep. And finally, um, is goals and expectations. Of course, if, if we set the wrong goals and we have the wrong expectations, it's going to make it much more difficult for that client to adhere to uh, a specific type of workout plan or, or fitness plan we create for them. Another important thing to mention about goals and expectations, and I'm really big on this, is just figuring out the underlying reason why something's successful. And it's usually not obvious. We'll talk a little bit more about that in just a second. And so after you've gathered all this information, of course you're going to start formulating a plan. We're not going to go into how to create a plan, but what we're going to discuss is some coaching tips for busy professionals. I think as a coach, if I'm really like an adherence manager. If I was teaching or if I was coaching an elite athlete, it's so simple. I'm like, okay, do X, Y, Z, have fun. I'll see you next week. No issues, right? It's like, okay, do, do 8,000 pull-ups. It's not a problem. But with working with busy professionals, the key is really helping that person adhere to, to the plan that they're developing. And there are five things I think that can help. The first is Authoritative, and I think being authoritative is about confidence and conviction 
in what you're saying. Of course, it's about asking the right questions and understanding where they're coming from. But having confidence and conviction is extremely important. Look at looking them in the eye and being confident that you can you can help them. Finally, is measuring progress. Measuring progress can sometimes open up a can of worms because some metrics are better uh, for other people. For, I think for some, to scale is a great way. Monday morning weigh-in after excretion. It's, it's a great way for some. For other people, it might create anxiety. There are all different types of metrics that we can follow to create progress. So even if the scale isn't budget, maybe there are other metrics that we can that we can look at. But I think these are some really valuable coaching tips. So next up, we're going to go into exercise fundamentals. And exercise is a very, very, very big topic. And we can even discuss what is physical fitness for the next hour. But instead of doing that, we're just going to go into three components, the basic components of exercise, which is flexibility, strength, and cardiovascular activity. And so what is flexibility? Well, a simple definition is it's the range of motion of the joints in your body. And busy professionals, I've done hundreds of assessments, there are patterns that you see. And, there, and because people sit down all day long, and so how does a person's posture look who sits down all day long? What does the posture look like? What's the postural deviation? Well, uh, starting from the head, it's a forward head posture. You're looking at the computer, you're looking forward. Your shoulders internally rotate because you're typing on a computer. Now, because you're sitting down, your hip flexors, the muscles on your hips are very short. And so what does that do? And your IT band gets shorter. It pulls your pelvis forward. What happens when your pelvis pulls forward? Well, it presses your knees in. It internally rotates your knees. And so then what happens when your knees internally rotate? Well, you get flat feet. It seems like everyone has flat feet that I, that I, that I do assessments on, or it's what's called pronation of the feet. And so this certainly doesn't happen for everyone, but this is a very common postural deviation that you see when people sit down all day. So here's another interesting question, and it's not a simple question. How do you measure flexibility? Okay, well, if there's so many joints in the body, you can move your joints in so many different ways. How do you assess the flexibility? How do you create a baseline of measurement in order to improve flexibility? Well, there's a really interesting thing called the parts versus patterns. Do you look individually at your hamstring flexibility, or do you look at patterns, which is how people actually move? So, for example, if you're squatting, or you're lunging, or you're pushing something, that's a pattern. That's actually how people move. No, we're not just a bunch of muscles, we're, we're what's an interconnected unit. And so a guy by the name of Ray Cook and Lee Burton created a really incredible system called the Functional Movement Screen. And what it allows us to do is actually assess flexibility and stability across seven movement patterns. It's incredibly powerful. And how it works is each movement pattern is given a score of zero to three. The score of zero means the client feels pain as they're doing the score of one means that the client is not able to do it. So for example, let's just say it's a, a, an example is a hurdle step. When you lift up one leg, and you try to bring it up and above a spring, that's about to be high. Some people can't do this because they don't have a proper mobility in their hip, or they don't have the stability in their hand. So that's a one. A, a two is if they can do it, but not the great form. And a three is if you can do the perfect form. So in total, you could score a 21 in this functional movement spring. And in my opinion, every human being who does an exercise program should probably do a bunch of movement training, ideally. Uh, and there are personal trainers who are certified to do it. So, how do you actually improve flexibility? Well, the cool thing about the functional movement training is if you fail one of the um, movement tests, 
it will give you corrective exercises. And as you do the corrective exercises, it will typically help you in that specific area. After corrective exercises, how do you improve flexibility? Well, you can do foam rolling, static stretching, and yoga, of course. And flexibility is really the foundation of an effective exercise routine. So you don't really hear about this as a consumer, but the smartest exercise professionals understand that how a continuum works is you start with flexibility, then you add stability, which is like motor control, then you add strength, and you add performance. The problem is, is what happens if someone's squatting and they can't squat? That's usually what happens. Nine times out of ten when I'm in the gym, someone's doing a lot of weight in the back squat, you should not be doing it because they don't have the flexibility in their hips to do it. And so I, I just try to challenge you to think about the role of flexibility and how important it is, especially for many professionals. And it can decrease the risk of injury and improve performance. Next is strength. What is strength? Well, there are a lot of different ways it can be applied, but it's the body's ability to produce force. And in my opinion, when developing a strength program, or when working with a personal trainer to develop a program, we need to worry about the muscles in the posterior chain, which is in your back, right? It's the back muscles, it's the glute muscles, the hamstrings. These are the muscles that when we're sitting down are lengthened actually where all the power is in our bodies. That's where your power comes from. Your power comes from your glutes, and your hamstrings, and your back. And so emphasis should be on these muscles. And some exercise professionals even do two pulling exercises for every one pushing exercise, for example. In addition, to focus on movement patterns and not muscle groups. Movement, again, muscle groups in the 1980s when we were into bodybuilding, that was like the rage. That was what people did. But now, fortunately, the fitness industry has come a long way, and we think about exercise in terms of movement patterns. And so as we're developing a workout plan, we're really going to develop workouts and strength training regimens that are based on movement patterns. And so what are the seven primal movement patterns? And the primal movement patterns are created by a guy named Paul Chuck. And what are they? A squat, a single leg exercise, or a lunge, a push. And there are two different types of pushing movements. There's a horizontal and vertical pushing, a pull, horizontal and vertical point. There's twisting. A lot of human movement is in the transverse plane. It's twisting. Most human movements actually, especially with sports, it's twisting. We rarely train twisting exercise. Then the last two is bending. And then finally is gaping, kind of catch-all for, for walking and locomotion. So when I structure a workout, I'm like, okay, let's do a squat, a lunge, and a pull as a circuit, and then we'll do another different type of circuit. So I'm not like, okay, let's do a bicep and a tricep and a more based on movement patterns and how our bodies are designed. Next, we're going to go to um, improving cardiovascular fitness. And so what is cardiovascular fitness? It's really the body's ability to efficiently use oxygen during exercise. And there are a few different ways we can improve our cardiovascular capacity. And I think there's some confusion about this. The first is we can actually use strength circuits or circuits of strength training exercises. And this is what I personally promote. What I use in my private training practice is we'll set up a circuit of, let's just say, a squat, a lunge, and a pull and we won't allow too much rest in between each step. And this actually uh, increases the heart rate pretty substantially and makes it a pretty effective cardiovascular routine. So that's one way, just to build it in. You kill two birds with one stone when you circuit training a strength circuit. Another way is long duration cardio exercise. That's kind of what we think about. And unfortunately, that's typically what people focus on. Their entire exercise routine is just Know, going for a long jog. It's, it's a small part of the whole puzzle, but uh, going for a 
jog, going swimming, cycling. These are all uh, these are all the types of cardiovascular activities that are long duration but low intensity that we can do to help improve our cardiovascular activity. And finally, a high intensity interval training, which is kind of a buzzword recently, and that uh, is short bursts of intense activity. What's cool about interval training is you can get uh, you can improve your cardiovascular fitness level in much less time. So, for example, instead of running for 30 minutes, you can do let's just say five or ten sprints and get literally as good, if not a better benefit, and burn as many calories as if you're running for 30 minutes. And so, for our busy clientele, I think these ideas of high-intensity interval training and just kind of strength circuits make a lot of sense because we can squeeze a lot of exercise into a short period of time. And so now let's put this all together uh, in terms of the exercise. And so how a workout might look is we'll have a warm-up routine that is based on improving flexibility and actually any of the movement dysfunctions we found on the movement screen. And so that will be the warm-up, kind of warming up the body. Next, we'll go into strength circuits, which are based on movement patterns. And we'll also get cardiovascular benefits. And then we'll wrap up with some high-intensity interval training. And this is a really effective way of getting a great workout in a short period of time. And this is what we personally do with our private clients. So in conclusion, I hope that we now have a better sense of, okay, what is it to be a busy professional, kind of put ourselves in our shoes, effectively be able to coach professionals by gathering and develop successful strategies and help them adhere to the plan. And then finally, understand the exercise fundamentals and how they relate to a busy professional and mostly sedentary. I hope this presentation was helpful, and thank you very much for having me here. Fitness for Busy Professionals by Mark Perry Presentation Summary Se Section 1. Understanding Busy Professionals 2. Coaching Busy Professionals 3. Exercise for Busy Professionals The Busy Professional Lifestyle Work Long Hours High Stress Sedentary Lack of Sleep Frequent Travel Coaching by busy professionals, gather information, medical history, exercise history, nutrition habit, lifestyle, personal plus career, goals and expectation. Top 5 coaching tips, be specific and simple, assess confidence level, identify hot button, be authoritative, measure progress. Section 3, Exercise for Busy Professionals What is physical fitness? The answer can be complicated but we will look at three areas. Flexibility, Strength, Cardiovascular Flexibility, Definition, The Range of Motion of the Joints in the Body Flexibility, Coint Common Posture Problems Forward Head Internal Rotated Shoulders Pelvis is rounded forward, knees internally rotated. Feet pronote or pronate. Flexibility coin, how to assess flexibility. Functional movement screen, seven, seven movement patterns scored from zero to three. Identifies flexibility and stability issues, prevent injuries. Flexibility coin, 7 movement screens. How to improve flexibility, correctiveness, or corrective exercise. 
foam rolling stretching yoga flexibility coin how to improve flexibility foam rolling stretching and yoga strength definition the body's ability to produce force how to improve strength emphasize posterior chain focus on movement patterns strength seven primal movement pattern squat lunge push pull twist bend gate cardio definition the body's ability to use oxygen efficiently during exercise how to improve cardio circuit of strength training exercise low intensity aerobic activity interval training workouts example warm up 10 minutes strength circuits 20 minutes interval training 5 to 10 minutes hi i'm carly and i work in the education department at iin students often ask what's the one thing i can do to be most successful they think it's learning as much as possible knowing every dietary theory inside and out or knowing the latest marketing tools but it's actually simpler than that the number one thing you can do to be more successful is doing two health histories every week. The best way to learn is by doing. The more you get out there and start doing, the higher your chances of success. Health histories give you experience in many different areas. It's the way you'll get clients and how you build confidence. It's a great tool to gauge what your coaching skills are. Maybe they're great, or maybe you need to work on listening or some other aspect of coaching. By doing these sessions, you will become a pro at building trust and intimacy with people you've never met before. You'll know the types of questions your clients will ask and the problems they most often need support with. Doing these every week will prepare you in a way that reading about something simply cannot do. There are only three possible results of doing health histories. One, you don't get any clients. Zero for two. Two, you get one client. And three, you get two clients. If you don't get any clients, zero for two, either the person didn't show up but the session wasn't helpful for them. If you get one client, one for two health histories, awesome. Very good, especially if you're still in school. And two for two is even better, a huge accomplishment. You got two clients. And you can break it down further if a person didn't show up, didn't confirm, or wasn't honest in their intention for their health history. In addition to evaluating your own coaching skills, you must also consider outside factors. When you continue practicing every week, you'll know what you need to work on and continue to improve as a coach. If you hear a little voice inside your head saying, I'm not ready, or what will I say? That's just your natural fear of doing something new. The best way to get over this is to go out and do it, because you can do it. That's what you're here for. So get out and do as many as you can. Set a goal for yourself and remember how important these sessions are to your success. Remember, Two health histories every week. It's Thursday with the Education Department, and today I'm going to talk to you about group programs. The structure of a group program is similar to a six-month program, except you're working with a group of people instead of one-on-one. -on -one. Group programs give you a chance to expand your offerings and help more people for the same or more money. For example, 
If you have an hour and a half group session with 10 people, that's 10 more lives you've changed and affected in a relatively short amount of time. Group programs are also great because they allow people who may not be able to afford your individual program an opportunity to work with you. On the flip side, this allows you the chance to make more money per hour because now you have 10 people meeting your financial needs instead of one. Sounds like a win-win, right? So, how do you start a group program and successfully maintain it? First, head to your specialty coaching resources and check out the session outlines for working with groups. This will give you a sense of how a standard group program is run and how you may want to structure and tailor your own program to you and your client needs. Maybe you want to add some icebreakers or do some group exercises. I think that you'll find that it's actually really fun not only to put a group program together, but also watch people learn from each other in the group. Putting together a supportive group of people with similar goals is very powerful in helping people reach their goals. When you're working with a group, the accountability factor is huge. With people supporting each other and cheering each other on, each individual is much more likely to meet and surpass their goals. Another great aspect of group programs is that they're flexible, and you can customize them to suit you and your clients' needs. Some of you may want to do three-month programs and others six-month programs. Some of you may want to hold your groups in person, and others may want to do it over the Internet. It's your group program, so be sure to create an environment that you enjoy and best serves your clients. If you decide to create a six-month group program, you'll probably have two sessions a month for six months. Pick a date and time that works for you. Don't try and work around other people's schedules. Plan six or seven weeks in advance and begin getting the word out. Post on social media. Create a Facebook group. Send out an announcement on your newsletter. However you do it, Make sure your friends, family, and target market know about it. If you attend networking events, tell people about your group program. If you have a website, make sure to have a space for them to sign up or learn more about it. You can also create flyers and distribute them in your community. In yoga studios, health and wellness centers, doctor's offices, or wherever you think your target market may see them and be compelled to sign up. Make sure that you're putting yourself out there for prospective clients. If you're conducting a health history and a client mentions that they can't afford your individual program, your group program may be a great option for them. Another great way of getting clients to sign up for your group program is to tease it during a workshop or seminar. So if you're speaking about smoothies versus juices, you can pause and say, this is a topic we'll discuss in my group program. If people come up to you after the talk and are interested, then you can sign them up right then and there. Next. Think about how much you want to charge, perhaps half the price of your individual program. So if you're charging $150 a month for your one-on-one -on -one coaching, try charging $75 for your group program per month. You may also want to consider giving clients an incentive for signing up early. If your program starts June 1st and is $75 full price, consider offering clients a chance to join for only $50 if they sign up by May 15th. This will give you security and help your clients take the leap, sign up, and change their lives. Make sure to send out reminders too, like, don't forget to sign up today since the discount ends tomorrow, or I've got 10 people registered and only 5 spots left. Don't miss out. Consider using a monthly automatic payment service like PayPal. 
This saves a lot of time and energy in getting payments. Instead of talking about the length and features of the program, it's important to emphasize what real results clients are going to get out of it. If your target market is emotional eaters, you'll want them to know that after your program, they will have a healthy relationship with food and will truly understand why they're eating when they're stressed. You want your prospective clients to know what, what they're going to get out of your program. What's in it for them? Promote the benefits they'll get. Get clear on how many people you want in your group and cap it at that. Think about how many people you can hold space and energy for and what size group will most benefit the clients. Start with five to 10 people, then experiment with 15 to 20. Listen to your intuition as the number of clients in your group is completely up to you and will be totally different from person to person. Your groups will grow and evolve as you and your business expand. You may want to send group members a welcome packet when they sign up. You can use this to give them a warm welcome. Explain when sessions occur each month, where and or how, what they'll get out of each session, how to participate fully, group rules, how to pay, and anything else you need them to know. We've talked about all the basics of setting up this group program, and I can't wait to see what you do with this information. See you next time. Set up a six-month group program. Offering group program is a wonderful way to expand your coaching practice while providing tons of value to your clients. Group programs are flexible and easy to customize, making them a fantastic and creative outlet for you as a coach by putting all your best work into one program. You can inspire your clients in a new and innovative ways. Schedule your group. Pick a date and time that works for you. Don't try to work around other people's schedule. Then, choose a length for your program. While we recommend the six-month program timeline, some group programs lend themselves better to different lengths of time. Choose what will work best for you and your clients. Once you have your date, time, and program length, Decide on a location for your meetings. You might choose to hold sessions over the phone or in person. Group programs can be a great way for members to shake up their daily routine. So consider unexpected locations like a vegan restaurant or park. You might even consider hosting a retreat when you travel and explore new cultures while doing something you love. Set your rate. Your group rate should be less than your individual program rate. Just as you considered factors such as location, value, and experience when setting your individual six-month program rate, you should keep these some factors in mind when deciding the price of your group program. For example, if you charge $300 per month for one-on-one -on -one coaching, you might set your group rate as $150 per month. Many coaches also offer clients an incentive for signing up early such as reduced rate of $100. This strategy gives you security and helps your client take the leap. Finally, consider using a payment service like PayPal or Verno to save time and energy receiving payments. Get clear on group size. Determine how many people you want in your program and cap 
it up the number. Think about how many people you can hold space and energy for what size group you most benefit your clients. Consider starting with 4 to 6 people, then experiment with 8 to 10. Listen to your intuition. The number of your clients in your group is completely up to you and will be totally different from coach to coach. As with everything else, your group program will evolve as you and your business expands. Choose a topic. When deciding on the topic for your work group program, consider one that you are passionate about and comfortable with. Think about topics you focus on with your private clients. Maybe you specialize in weight loss, digestion, or eating for skin health. Do you, then choose a topic that you coach clients through and has great result with. Something, with, something you're confident in but more importantly excited about sharing. Map out your sessions. Prepare for your group program just like you would for a private client in a six-month program. Choose one main teaching point for each session and few homework assignments or takeaways. It's something helpful to define the benefits you want clients to get from doing the program and then work backward. As you contemplate each stage of the program, consider the practical actionable tools that will get your clients the results thereafter. Keep in mind that as the program unfolds, you'll co-construct meaning with your clients in your sessions, just as you do in the individual client sessions. While it's important to have a general plan to ensure your clients towards the predetermined outcome, avoid over-planning sessions to allow space for your client to lead the discussion and do the work. Consider partnering with experts. A great way to impact even more people and increase the value of your program is to invite an expert or two, such as a fitness instructor, chiropractor, or other healthy living expert. To be in your group program, added bonuses of partnering with wellness experts is that it expands your marketing audience and open up the, fortune, the opportunity to become their go-to-help coach when they're looking to refer clients within their network. Get the word out. Plan six or seven weeks in advance and spread the word to your friends, family, and target market. Post on social media. Create a Facebook group or include an announcement to your newsletter. Promote your group at, an, at networking events and on your website. If you are leading workshop, mention your program as a teaser to further people's interest in working with you. You can also create flyers and distribute them in your community. Be sure to highlight the results of your group program instead of thinking about the length and feature of the program. Emphasize the real, real results clients are going to get out of it. Think about your target market's unique needs and help them understand how your program is going to support their struggle in this particular area. 
share the, share the benefits of, of your program before you list the price. Explaining the value, pe value people are going to gain before they see a number allows potential clients to view your program as a health investment. It truly is. Create accountability. One of the recent group programs are so successful is that members hold one another accountable. Experiment with matching one's person with an accountability partner for regular check-ins throughout the program. You might also consider creating a private Facebook group to build a strong sense of community and connection. Work with your personal type. The way you run group programs will depend entirely on your personality type. It may be considered to extrovert since they gain energy from being around to other people and it may take a little more thought, planning, and intention for introverts who gain their energy from solo time. For introverts, this might simply mean planning more self-care and alone time before and after group sessions. Take your personality into consideration when determining the kind of preparation and send recovery you you need to show up fully for your clients. Send a welcome packet. Sending welcome packets when members sign up is a great way to work to warmly invite them into the group. Welcome packets are also a great way to explain when and where the session occur each month what they get out of each session, how to participate fully, the group rules, and how to pay, etc. Checklist for success, schedule your group, set your group size, choose a topic, plan your session, promote your group program, set up a payment details in advance, send a welcome packet with important details and policies, have fun. Seven reasons to add group coaching to your practice. One, reach more people and build a community. One-on-one -on -one coaching is rewarding, but group programs allows you to get your message out and connect with more people. Group rates also let you help people who may not be able to afford your individual program, broadening your impact on the community. Two, develop confidence in your role as a coach. Because you allow time for group discussion, you don't have to carry the entire session yourself. You'll become more comfortable in your role as a guide on the side. 3. Perceive as a leader. When you run a group program, you are putting yourself in a leader, leadership role. And your group will see you this way, even if you forget. 4. Save time and make money. Make more money per hour and prevent burnout. As time goes by, some integrative nutrition health coaches like more variety in their practice. Adding group programs is a great way to take your coaching to a new level, impact more lives, and keep your work inspiring. 5. Streamline your marketing. When you market to groups, the reward can be greater since you are able to work with many clients at once. 6. Receive valuable insight. 
tune into your group conversation to gain a wealth of information that will push your coaching practice forward. For example, note common problems and solutions during sessions, then develop your future marketing around these concerns. Common problems might lead to a new target market. Write testimonials based on their progress used to help market your other services. For example, 20 clients have collectively lost 300 pounds in our first four months of working together. Develop one-on-one -on -one coaching content based on what you learn from the group. This will increase the number of people who can rare or rave about you and write glowing testimonials about your program. 7. Create additional accountability. The pressure is not all your shoulder since group members are held accountable by one another. Group coaching is a fantastic way to reach even more people and make more money for about the same time investment as private coaching. Most new coaches start out by working with private clients to flex their coaching muscles and develop their unique skills. Then, they often want to spread the ripple effect to even more people, so they start doing group programs. In this lecture, you're going to learn three key tools for masterful group coaching and a seven-step session outline. The basis of group coaching is your confidence, your coaching skills, and your inherent worth as a human. Yes, we've mentioned this concept in many lectures because it's absolutely crucial to your success as a coach and your own personal development and happiness. Remember, you are valuable and worthy just because you exist. It's your birthright. You don't have to prove anything to anyone. In order to hold space for the group, you'll need to acknowledge that it's not about you showing up and performing to prove something or fluff your feathers. It's about asking the right questions and creating an environment where people feel comfortable to ask questions, process emotions, and evolve. If you're tripped up in an ego story and constantly concerned with whether or not you're doing a good job as a coach, your group will feel that and the energy will be off. When you're first starting out with group coaching, it's a great idea to work with a small group, four to six people to start. This gives you a chance to practice holding space and managing a large group before expanding to bigger groups. Remember, it's a good thing if you don't feel totally ready to group coach yet. Feel the fear and do it anyway. It's better to make mistakes and fail in the beginning so you can learn and progress. Give it your all, but don't put too much pressure on yourself. You might even choose to charge a lower cost for your first small group coaching program. It's completely up to you. Once you've practiced with small groups, those people will begin referring you to other people. You'll grow your network and you'll organically start creating and coaching larger groups. Now we're going to dive into three master group coaching skills. The first skill is pre-framing. Starts upon first contact with prospective clients. Always be clear, warm, and professional. Have all prospective clients fill out a health history form and go through an intercession with you to make sure they're a great fit. Once clients say yes, 
have them review and sign a client agreement that outlines exactly what they'll be getting in the group program. There should be no surprises. Participants should get exactly what they expect and more. By using professional forms and being clear on what you do and don't do, you pre-frame the entire program, laying out expectations so no one is disappointed or confused. Next, you want to discuss group rules at the first session. This is a great way of pre-framing the actual sessions so that you can keep the group under control, maintain a supportive environment, and hold space for transformation. Tell people that everything that goes on in the group stays in the group and is completely confidential. And make sure they ask group members permission before posting anything personal or even photos to social media. It's also great to have clients avoid giving each other advice unless someone explicitly asks for it. This reduces overwhelm for people. There's already so much conflicting info about health and wellness, and everyone needs to discover their own biological needs. If group members are constantly forcing advice on each other, this can't happen. Then, you want to pre-frame common roadblocks that you see. For example, you might say, the breakfast experiment can be challenging for some people because it guides you to change up your morning routine every day. It can be tough to give up your usual routine, but it's worth it to find out what truly works best for your body. This reduces the shock factor of having to switch something up and make it smoother when clients are trying new things. When you reframe, the rates of client success are higher because people know exactly what to expect. Next, make sure you explain that when one group member is being coached one-on-one, -on -one, sometimes called hot seat coaching, there's always something everyone can learn from it. Serendipitously, what one person is going through often eerily relates to the whole group. Pre-framing this soothes possible client fears that they won't get the intention or results that they want or need. As a coach, you can make sure you're always serving the group by tying individual stories into broader coaching concepts that apply to everyone. So consistently remind group members to stay open-minded and keep their ears and eyes open for ways individual coaching scenarios apply to them. They'll consistently be surprised. Observing other people being coached is sometimes way better than being coached one-on-one -on -one because you get a bird's eye view of the challenge and this gives you perspective on your challenges and helps you move forward. Next, you want to be conscious of monopolizers, people who talk a lot and are outgoing. These people might eat up all the time and you need to use specific skills like interrupting and bottom lining to make sure they don't take over the session. You can first pre-frame interrupting by saying at the first session that in service of the group, you may interrupt people at times to get to the heart of the challenge and make sure everyone gets the results they're looking for. In a moment where someone is going on and on about their story, you can say, for example, Melinda, I'm going to ask you to tell me your specific question here. What's the bottom line? Using the client's first name will immediately get their attention. Keep your tone gentle, yet firm. Women especially are conditioned to be nice and even timid, but your clients are paying you for transformation, not a friendly chat. Don't 
afraid to interrupt overly talkative clients and get to the root of it. It's also great to actively encourage less outgoing people to share. Third, hold space for the group and be aware of the group energy as a whole. Remember, this is not about you or about any one person. This is about the transformation of the group as a whole. Yes, for the whole group to transform, most or all of the people will have their own personal transformation. But you never want to let one person take over the group. If one person is triggered by an exercise and starts crying, for example, give them love and support and attention, but don't allow them to take over the whole session. Pre-frame for everyone by saying you'll spend five to 10 minutes processing with them and relating what's going on for them to the group, then move on. To recap so far, you have three key group coaching skills, pre-framing, being conscious of monopolizers by bottom lining and interrupting where necessary, and remaining aware of the group energy as a whole rather than making it about your performance as a coach or about any one group member. Now that you have your groundwork in place, let's move through our seven-part session structure. One, start off by asking the group what's new and good and what they're celebrating. Break the ice by quickly sharing something you're excited about, no more than 60 seconds. Then open it up for people to share. You can have everyone share if it's a small group or just three to four people if it's a large group. Starting off with something positive puts everyone in a good mood and sets the stage for transformation. Next, you may choose to do a short grounding meditation where you have the group simply focus on their breath and a simple mantra. No more than three minutes. Third, from that place of calm, have everyone mentally set an intention for what they'd like to get out of the session and how they'd like to feel after. And have two to three people share or everyone if it's a very small group. The fourth step is to introduce the topic of the evening by first asking the group if they're ready to learn something new. This gauges whether or not they're feeling overwhelmed with info or they're ready for something new. Be open to the fact that people may have questions from the last session that need to be addressed before moving on to a new topic. Once everyone is ready for new information, Start your teaching concept of the evening. It's a great idea to start off with a short story, also known as an anecdote, to get people engaged and then move into your topic. For example, if your group program is about sugar cravings and your topic for the evening is sweet vegetables, you might tell a story about how you ate an entire bag of chocolate chips at work one day, but then started eating lots of sweet vegetables and your chocolate cravings melted away, pun intended. Then you move into sweet vegetables and discuss what they are, why they're beneficial, and maybe share some great simple recipes that will be easy for clients to integrate. Remember to make your mini lecture digestible and conversational. Pause periodically and ask for a resonance and or if people have questions, say, does that make sense? Or if telling a story, has something like that ever happened to you? Keep them engaged, and remember that you do not need to spend an hour spewing information to create change. Remember, transformation is more important than information. Your clients can only process and integrate so much at once. Keep your talk 20 minutes or less. 
Most people have the information to get healthier, but they don't know how to make the transformation. That's where coaching comes in. By asking questions and holding space, you allow them to discover what action steps they'll actually be able to take and get invested enough in their vision for themselves to be inspired to take those actions. Next, step five. Have group members do exercises to integrate the session topic. You might choose to do hot seat coaching where you coach one person directly and relate what's going on to them to the group. Or you might have people journal or do paired shares. Six, ask a couple people to share with the whole group what their main takeaway was from the session. And last but not least, seven, after you've heard from a few people and gauged how everything resonated, give your group one to three action steps to take the week following the session. For example, you might challenge your group to eat one serving of sweet vegetables every day, meditate for five minutes, and write one page in their journal every morning. To recap, you first had the group share what's new and good. Then you did a grounding meditation. Next, you had your clients set an intention for themselves. And after that, you transitioned into your teaching points. Then you had the group integrate that teaching point through exercises. Toward the end of the session, you had participants share their main takeaways and ahas from the last session. Last, you gave the group one to three action steps to take after the session. I hope the three group coaching master skills and the seven step session structure were helpful. I can't wait to see what you do with this new info. Group coaching skills. Building a client base is one of the most important initial steps in becoming a successful health coach. The best way to do this is to begin with individual sessions and progress to group sessions, which are more economical and help get word of your services around much quicker. We advise starting with smaller groups such as four to six people at first and increasing this number as your network expands and you feel more settled into your role as an integrative nutrition health coach. In this profession, confidence is vital, but takes time to build. Beyond just knowing your staff, masterful health coaches believe they have value to offer the world. That being said, be sure your confidence does not dominate group sessions as your job is to listen to those who are mentoring. Your ultimate goal is to create an open space for non-judgmental discourse and collective growth. Three tools for group coachings. One, free frame expectations. Preframing is about laying out expectation to clear the path to success. The way the sessions will be run should not surprise, confuse, or disappoint anyone you coach. They should only be surprised by what they learn and how much they grow. Here are some concrete ways to preframe expectations. 1. Provide a client agreement to be signed before starting the sessions. Establish group rules at the first session to set the tone for future meetings. Moderate the room and prevent clients from giving unsolicited advice to one another. 
be clear and transparent about certain roadblocks that clients often face throughout these programs. Connect individual anecdotes to the general ethos of the course. While personal stories can be beneficial to the group environment, it is equally important that the big picture is always clear. 2. Be aware of monopolizers. Be mindful of people who have tendency to dominate group conversations. These sessions are not about the personal growth of one individual, but the maturization of the group as a whole. Here are some tactics for maintaining balance. Use first name when jumping into conversations. Don't be afraid to interject a topic or personal story. In fact, this is actually your job. Rather than singling anyone out, calmly express the need to move on for the group's agenda. Encourage less talkative clients to speak up during the sessions by calling on them after posing a high mileage question. 3. Pay attention to the energy of the group. Pay attention to how the group as a whole is doing and keep the conversation moving forward. Health coaching is not about the coach and it's not about the growth of a few individuals in the group. It's about everyone sharing the space and time and making progress together. Session outline. Once you've laid the group work for success, consider how you will instructure your group. This seven-part session until will help you get started. You can use this exactly or adopt in it to fit the needs of your clients. Allow these session outlines to change organic, organically and evolve as you gain more experience coaching group programs. 1. Ask what's new and what's good. Check in with your clients before each meeting to break the ice and put everyone in a positive frame of mind. 2. Do a meditation. Spend up to 3 minutes grounding everyone. 3. Set an intention. Be sure the group is always knows what session is about. 4. Introduce your topic. Keep this one quick, no more than 20 minutes. Remember, it's not about you. 5. Do not exercise. Plan a group exercise so members can deepen their understanding of the session topic. 6. Hold a group share. Group share does not keep everyone engaged and on the same page but also open up the space for members to have aha moments. 7. Provide action steps. Positive change for your clients and the group as a whole comes from taking small, inspired action steps between sessions. Group coaching tips. Group coaching is a fun and effective way to expand your practice, reach more people, and create a greater ripple effect. Group sessions provide participants the opportunity to learn from you as well as other group members. In fact, one of the biggest benefits to a group setting is the community and connections that are created. Group programs are also a great alternative for clients who may not be able 
to afford your individual coaching program. Typical group programs range from $75 to $150 per person per month, depending on when you are with your practice. We encourage you to keep your target market in mind when creating the content for your group program. This way, you'll attract the client you are most passionate about supporting. While group sessions may seem daunting, they really aren't much different from one-on-one -on -one coaching sessions. The tips are 1. Arrange the group wisely. A small or mid-sized group is easier to manage and facilitate. It will allow everyone to feel like they are receiving individual attention. During the sessions, incorporate strength, break to get members moving so they stay focused and alert. Encourage participants to take notes and give them any handouts you might have at the beginning of the session. 2. Plan your sessions. The length of each session can run from 75 to 90 minutes, depending on the size of the group. Establish a set length of time for each session and be sure to start and stop on schedule, honoring everyone's time, including your own. Customize your content and enhance it with personal touches. Meet with your group every two weeks at the same time and have the schedule set before the program begins. When meeting face-to-face, -face, place the chairs in a circle for smaller groups or in row of semicircles for larger groups. Encourage everyone to seat the next to different people at each session to receive the most volume. 3. Maintain confidentiality in a safe space. Include a program agreement that details what your clients can expect from you as well as what you expect from them. Have each participant sign the agreement and submit payment prior to working together. At the first session, ask members to agree to maintain confidentiality, contribute positivity to the discussion, and keep one another on track to reach their goals. Trust may take time to develop, but as you cultivate a safe space, clients will open up and reach their goals more quickly. 4. Remember that less is more. You are a guide on the side rather than a sage on the stage. You are there to steer the conversation so that the group stays on track to achieve their goals. Create community within the group by identifying common goals, developing a sense of a shared purpose, and openly communicating boundaries. 5. Set a positive tone. Have participants consider what is going well in their lives. Encourage them to recognize the positive aspect of their lives and all their successes, whether big or small. Cultivate a feel-good energy to help clients attract more joy by asking what's new and good. 6. Energize the space. Introduce a fun activity to put group members at ease. Ask everyone to share their dessert island food or dessert island food or favorite childhood or grown-up. Sweet. 
Consider this type of icebreaker for the first few sessions until the group becomes, becomes comfortable sharing with one another on a deeper level. 7. Be flexible. You might start with an outline of what you intend to cover, but expert participant responses to be the bulk of your session. You'll probably do a lot of the talking in the beginning, but as participant gets more comfortable, they'll begin to lead the conversation. 8. Co-create an agenda with participants. Ask what participants would like to learn or accomplish. Integrate their suggestions when appropriate and provide a list of additional topics. You will likely spark their interest in a new era. 9. Ask a powerful question. Question that begins with, what are particular powerful? These questions deepen understanding while why question may trigger defensiveness. With, to get a richer reply, replace a why question with one that begins with what. Notice the difference between what did you do that or why did you do that and what do you think led you to do that. 10. Be direct but loving. Often more vocal members of a group dominate the conversation. When this happens, respectfully and lovingly remind them the time is limited and you want everyone to have the opportunity to share. Those who attempt to dominate the session show up late or are disrespectful to not support the group dynamic. Be proactive in handling these situations but do so with compassion and understanding. 11. Keep moving forward. Health coaching focuses on creating the, the future and taking action steps toward goals. Focus on where your clients want to go rather than digging around in the past. If participation tend to dwell on negative aspects of their lives, use questions such as, What have you learned? And what will you do differently next time? To help them move on and grow. 12. Challenge your clients gracefully. Challenge your, your clients based on discrepancies that what you have heard rather than your own bias. Practice active listening and bring attention to when their words and actions are not in alignment. For example, Jane, your goal is to lose weight, yet you said you haven't been drinking water or eating vegetables. Those two st statements don't seem to match up. Practice communication in this way to put the responsibility back on your client to consider the best way forward. 13. Deal with resistance dis the diplomatically. If a participant resists commi committing to an action step, try. You haven't been moving forward to the goals you set. What is the benefit to not taking action? Or, I'm sensing some resistance here. What would you rather be doing? 14. Coach many as you coach one. Encourage all participants to evaluate their own experience as you coach one person. 
teach everyone to ask themselves the same questions and evaluate their own situations. It's often easier to clients to have aha moment when learning through other people's situations. This is just one benefit of being a member of a group program. 15. Establish clear boundaries. Decide how much support you will provide outside group sessions before the program begins and consider adding this information to your program agreement. As an example, you could choose to offer 15 minutes phone check in once a month and email support during certain hours. 16. Encourage participants to support one another outside the group. This is a great way for members to build friendship with people who have shared interests and are working towards similar goals. Consider creating an online forum for a group members to support one another between sessions. Just as with one another coaching, the more you practice group coaching, the more confident you'll feel. As a leader, your ultimate job is to hold a safe space that inspires group members to explore their stack points and support one another to move forward the lives they want for themselves. Everyone has 24 hours in the day. How are you using yours? What's your relationship to time like? When you're working toward mastering time management, the first thing you want to address is how you feel and speak about time. Do you feel like you're always rushing? Like there's never enough time? Do you often go to bed feeling guilty about not getting enough done? You have the option to change your relationship with time starting now. Because here's the truth, you create time. It's all about your perception of time and yes, how you manage it. If you want to stop feeling like time runs your life and take the reins on your schedule, I'm going to take you through the nine steps to master time management. First, infuse your day with time and space by simply remembering to breathe. If you're overwhelmed by the topic of time management, this is a fantastic place to start. As a first step, just focus on breathing deeply throughout the day. Don't change anything else yet. By breathing deeply into your lower abdomen, you engage your parasympathetic nervous system, also known as your rest and digest system. This type of breathing engages the relaxation response and makes you feel more calm, present, and centered. This has a huge effect on your day because when you feel calm internally, everything going on externally feels way less abrasive. You can handle road bumps, deadlines, and anything else that comes into your way with a greater sense of ease, intuition, and presence. So step one, breathe. Next up, step two, change the way you talk about time. Instead of always talking about how you don't have enough time and your weekend off went way too fast and you wish there was just more time in the day, Ground your energy and acknowledge that time is exactly what you make of it. Say out loud, I create time. I have as much time as I need. Even if these statements don't feel totally true for you yet, 
Start programming yourself to operate this way and time will expand naturally for you. So now that we've set some groundwork for how we want to feel in our bodies, no matter what's going on around us, and set some rules for how we talk about time, let's get into some linear tactics. That is, tactics that are very practical, where you secure a target and work toward it. So step three, grab a notebook and write down everything you spend your time on right now. Include personal care like showers, work, family responsibilities, internet, TV time, reading, and anything else that you spend your time doing. Be honest and be specific. If you're having trouble getting this on paper or feel like you're not being totally honest here, track your activities one day this week. Every time you pick up your phone to scroll through Instagram, note what time you pick it up and put it down. And do the same for everything else. Track your activities all day for one day to give yourself an accurate picture. It's a little tedious, but it's one day and it's totally worth it when your goal is to master time. Next, we have step four. Write down the top five things that you care about. This is big picture. Here's an example of mine. One, inspiring conscious work. Two, optimal physical, mental, and emotional health. Three, authentic supportive friendships. Four, philanthropy and giving back. And five, travel and cultural immersion. Write down yours now. Next, compare your top five values to your list of activities that you spend your time on every day. Do they line up? If not, eliminate one activity right now that's out of alignment. And keep eliminating activities and obligations as you can until you're only doing the things that align with your top five. Now that you have a good idea of what you're actually spending your time on and what your top five values are, let's craft your ideal day in step five to mastering time management. Focus on just three primary projects every day and not just work-related. So your day might look like writing your newsletter, working out, and making dinner for your family. Anything else that happens is bonus. Now, if you find yourself overwhelmed by the fact that you have more than three things to do every day, just get as close to this goal as possible and choose your top three to complete first and then do the others afterward if there's still time. Then, choose the most challenging one every morning and do it first, preferably before lunch. This gives you a great sense of accomplishment and fuels you with momentum for the rest of the day. Next, we have step six. Use a calendar instead of a to-do list and chunk projects down. If you put something on your calendar, it's much more likely you'll get it done and you'll be more realistic about how much time it takes, especially if you're using a digital calendar and you have to allocate a certain amount of time for it. This is a tactic used by billionaires to optimize their time. It works. Now, by chunk projects down, I mean if you need to create your website, for example, break it down into pieces like write bio, do photo shoot. Most projects have multiple parts and it's really intimidating to just put create website on your calendar. Make sense? Moving on to step seven, delegate and automate. This is one of my favorite things. When you delegate and automate activities you don't love doing, you free yourself up to work in your zone of genius 
which leads to flow states where work feels much easier and a much greater sense of happiness. This can be scary for people because most of us have the perception that delegating and automating is for the super wealthy people and it costs a ton of money. That's completely false. You can get support at very affordable prices. Here are some ideas to get your wheels turning. Drop your laundry off instead of doing it for yourself. At a good place, it only costs a few more dollars than doing it yourself, and it saves you hours. And a lot of places will do pickup and delivery as well. You can hire a smart, mature college student to help you out around the house for a few hours every week for $10 to $12 an hour. You can automate your finances so your bills get taken out automatically. You can ask your kids, husband, partner, or roommate for more help. Work out a system that's beneficial for all parties involved. Voice your needs in a respectful way. Lastly, you can schedule all of your personal care appointments for the next six months, such as haircuts, manicures, pedicures, or anything else that you do regularly. Take out the guesswork and put everything in your calendar in one swoop. Let go of the idea that you can do it all. Every superwoman or man has a support team. Next, we have step eight which is one of our favorites. Get accountability. Write down a few possible accountability buddies now and reach out to them this week. Set a standing appointment every week to talk with them and hold each other accountable for your intentions and calendar items. This makes the difference between talking about and wanting to do something and actually doing it. Last step nine, release perfection. Time is tricky and it might not always feel and be perfect. Let go of the need to be perfectly scheduled and productive every day. You're a human, not a robot. Use gentle language to bring yourself back when you get off track. Talk to yourself like you would speak to an innocent, sweet, intelligent child. And don't judge yourself, as this can cause a downward spiral. Stay positive and keep supporting your physical, mental, and emotional health through primary and secondary food. To recap, first, we infuse more time and space throughout the day by deep breathing all day, every day, no matter what else is happening. Next, we change our language around time to program ourselves to feel as if time has expanded. Three, we wrote down everything we're currently spending our time on every day. Then, we got clear on our top five most important areas of focus, big picture. In step five, we focus on our three primary projects every day and did the toughest one first. Then we started using a calendar instead of a to-do list to get real on how much we can do in one day and increase our <coughs> chances of completing what we want to complete. In step seven, we delegated and automated. So impactful. Step eight was all about accountability. And in step nine, we released the need for perfection and started treating ourselves with love and care. I hope you already feel better about time. You're well on your way to mastering time. Thanks for watching and I'll see you next time. Manage time and procrastination. Your relationship to time. Everyone has 24 hours in a day. How are you using yours? What's your relationship to time like? When you're working toward mastering time management, the first thing you want to address is how you feel and speak about time. Do you feel like you're always rushing? Do you feel like there's never enough time? 
Do you often go to bed feeling guilty about not getting enough done? You have the options to change your relationship with time. Starting now, you create time. It's all about your perspective of time and how you manage it. Stop feeling time runs your life and take the reins of your schedule. 9 Steps to Master Time Management 1. Infuse your day with the time and space by simply remembering to breathe. In your overwhelmed by the topic of time management, this is a fantastic place to start. As a first step, just focus on breathing deeply throughout the day. Don't change anything else yet. By breathing into your lower, lower abdomen, you engage your parasympathetic nervous system, also known as the rest and digest system. This type of breathing engages the relation or relaxation response and make you feel more calm, present, and centered. This has a huge effect on your day because when you feel internally calm, everything going on extremely feels much less abrasive. You can handle road bombs, deadlines, and other things that come your way, your way with a greater sense of ease, intuition, and presence. 2. Change the way you talk about time. Instead of always talking about how you don't have enough time, your weekend went too fast and you wish there was more time in the end. Ground your energy and acknowledge that time is exactly what you make of it. Say out loud, I create time and I have much as I have much time as I need. Even if the statement don't feel totally true for you, yet start programming yourself to operate this way. Three, write down everything you currently spend your time on each day. Your list should include personal care like shower, work, family responsibilities, internet, and TV time. Reading and anything else you spend time doing, be honest and specific. If you're having trouble getting these things on paper or feel like you're not being totally honest, track your activity one day this week. Every time you pick up your phone to scroll through social media, Note what you pick it up and put it down. Do this for everything you do. Keeping track for a day will give you an accurate picture. 4. Write down the top 5 you care about. This should be big picture things. For example, 1. Inspiring conscious work. 2. Optimal physical, mental, and emotional health. 4. Or three, authentic, supportive friendships. Four, philanthropy and giving back. Five, travel and cultural immersion. After you make your list, compare your top five value focuses to the list of activities you spend your time on every day. Do they align? If not, eliminate one activity that doesn't match up. Keep eliminating activities and obligations when you can until you're only doing things that align with your top 5 values. 5. 
focus on three primary projects every day. Do the toughest one first. This is where you get to craft your day, your ideal day. Focusing on your chosen primary projects every day and not just the projects related to work. Your ideal day might be writing your newsletter, working out, and making dinner for your family. Anything else that happens is a bonus. If you find yourself overwhelmed because you have more than three things to do every day, get as close to this goal as possible. Choose your top three complete first and do the others afterward if there's still time. It's often helpful to do the most challenging one first each morning, prefer, preferably before lunch. This gives you a great sense of accomplishment and fuels you with momentum of the rest of the day. 6. Use a calendar instead of a to-do list. If you put something on your calendar, it's much more likely to get done. You'll be more realistic about how much time it takes, especially if you're using a digital calendar and have to allocate spe specific amount of time. Now, break your project down into chunks. For example, if you need to create your website, break it down into pieces like write bio, do Photoshop, etc. Most projects have multiple parts and it's intimidating to do or to, to just put create website on your calendar. 7. Delegate and automate. Let go of the idea that you can do it all. Even Superman or every Superman and Superwoman has a support team. When you delegate and automate activities you don't love doing, you free yourself up to work in your zone of genius, which leads to flow states where work feels much easier and much greater sense of happiness. Here are some ideas to get your wheels turning. 1. Drop your laundry off instead of doing it yourself. It usually costs a few dollars more than doing it yourself and can save you hours. Plus, a lot of laundromats offer pickup and delivery. 2. Hire a smart, mature college student to help you around the house a few hours every week for $10 to $15 an hour. 3. Set up your finances so your bills get paid automatically. 4. Ask your kids, husband, partner, or roommate for more help. Work out a system that's beneficial for all, all parties. Voice your needs in a respectful way. 5. Schedule or pers all personal care appointments for the next 6 months, such as haircuts, manicures, pedicures, or anything else you do regularly. Take out the guesswork and put everything in your calendar in one swoop. 6. Get accountability. Write down a few possible accountability partners now and reach out to them this week. Set a standing appointment every week to talk with them and hold each other accountable for your intentions and calendar items. This is the difference between talking about or wanting to do something and actually doing it. 9. 
release perfection. Time is tricky and might not always feel or be perfect. Let go of the need to be perfectly scheduled and productive every day. You're a human, not a robot. Use gentle language to bring yourself back when you get off track. Don't judge yourself and be realistic about your time. Stay positive and keep supporting your physical, mental, and emotional health through your primary and secondary food. I've had about, I had a, about 10 days ago, I had a pretty bad concussion. And I was concerned if I was going to make it here today. I was, uh, was at my daughter's softball game and I was playing third base. And I, I was, this is what I was told because I was knocked out. I don't remember anything. Um, and I ended up in the emergency room, you know, four hours later. I, uh, I made this spectacular diving play at third base. And a 50-year-old gentleman, you know, relived his youth and attempted to jump over me, meet me in the head, and I went out. So I spent five days in bed with, you know, that pounding headache. So it, it allowed me uh, the time to be very introspective and thoughtful and obviously spend a lot more time thinking about um, you. It did. And giving you value. And it depressed me. Right? Because when you have time to think and stop and get away from all the clutter, I started thinking about, you know, because we're going to talk about three things today. Input, output, and about relationships three major topics, and how they all are interrelated. And I said, wow, my natural DNA is half empty. People that know me would never say that. They think I'm half full. Because this is my energy all the time without caffeine. All the time. But typically, I'm half empty. My kids have gotten to a point, and they're 7 and 10 years old, they say, Eric, Daddy, Daddy, stop complaining. You know when your 7 and 10 year old says to stop complaining? You have a problem. So I thought about, what do I do at this stage of my life? You know, I do a lot of professional development work. I do a lot of coaching and training. It's something I love to do. And, you know, someone asked me backstage, do you love public speaking? And it's not so much about loving public speaking. What's very, very important to me is that you walk away in the next 20, 25 minutes with a couple of nuggets you can start implementing into your business today. That's the most important thing. It's not about, wow, he was, he was fabulous, he was entertaining, he was funny. It's not about being entertaining and funny. Your time is valuable. So it's very, very important that I give you information that you can use to be better at what you do, period. So I'm the business side of all this, right? So we talk about input and output. So the question today is, first thing I need you to ask yourself is, what are you feeding your brain? And these little, uh, everyone's like, oh my God, you wore blue balls on stage. I'm like, no, they just happen to be blue. They're a brain with my name on it. So it's like all my powers, if you have one of these. So, I want to talk about taking inventory of what you are feeding your brain. Because let's be honest, as a society, we are truly on information overload, right? We never shut off 
So I really want you after today to go home and think about what do I read, what do I watch, what do I listen to, who do I communicate with, who do I have to communicate with, like my mother. No, right? I mean, I love my mother, and I'd like to speak with her. Unfortunately, at this stage in her life, most of what I'm speaking to her about today is not the most positive of subjects. It is what it is, right? But there are some friends that you do have the right to divorce yourself from. There may be some family members you have the right to divorce yourself from. So I want you to take in a list and a mental inventory of what you are feeding your brain. What is your filtering system? What is your intellectual menu? We are sponges, whether you like it or not. Whether it's conscious or unconscious, we are sponges. And you take for granted what you surround yourself with. Okay, so number one, mental inventory. Number two, quiet time. I can't tell you how many times I got in trouble in school when I was younger. And they put me on quiet time. We as adults do not give ourselves enough quiet time. I'm begging you. I am pleading with you. Take 30 minutes a day. Take 60 minutes a day. Put it in your calendar. If it's not in your calendar, it will not happen. Because something else always comes up. What else is more important than spending time with yourself? So why does that not deserve to be put in your calendar? Because I'm telling you right now, if it's not in your calendar, you will not do it. So stop disrespecting yourself because I'll tell you one thing. There's one huge thing that comes out of quiet time with yourself. What do you think that is? Who said that? Oh, I love you. Creativity. Quiet time. Creativity. People say to me, wow, Eric, how did you come up with that idea? I said I spent some time with myself. I thought about it. Right? Think about it. If you're constantly being bombarded, and we are. We are. I'm on Facebook just to watch and just to listen. That's how I participate in Facebook. Oh, I find it intellectually just astonishing what people feel the need to share. I'm not making fun of it. It's funny because we know how ridiculous some people are. But who, may, who am I to say they're ridiculous? Because that, that's going to be talking about, you know, the third part today is about relationships. Who am, am I ridiculous to someone else is someone's passion? So I'm not, you know, we're, we're kind of chuckling at it because there are some ridiculous things on Facebook. So it's uh, quiet time, breathing, which we're about to talk a little bit about. We don't breathe enough. You don't get enough oxygen to the brain to be creative. How many times a day do you actually take a deep breath? Very rarely. Very rarely. And I'm not talking about yoga class. Input. Two things. Taking inventory. Quiet time. Now, input leads to output. 
And I really want to focus output on one thing and one thing only today. And that is your energy. The energy you give off, you will get back. Or the energy you give off, you will turn off. I don't think we're respectful enough of how other people want to receive our message. And I'd like you to think about that. Because obviously all these things that you're feeding your brain are going to lead to some type of output. Let me ask you a quick survey in the room. Generally speaking, we all have a personality style. We have primary and secondary behavioral styles. By a show of hands, who typically thinks most of the time they prefer to do things a little bit faster? A little bit faster. Please raise your hands high. Okay? That's, wow. That's 80, 90% of the room. Okay. My concern is with our energy is that it masks our message. I want you to really think about that after today. Does your energy mask your message. So we have most people that were faster in the room. Who in the room thinks they're a little bit warmer versus cooler? Warmer. Give me a hug. Smile on your face. You're just a hugger all the time. To a fault. Who's a little bit more of like, I'm a little bit slower. You know, don't. Okay. So here's the challenge, because when you're faster and you're warmer, for many people that can be overwhelming. Because you do great things. You change people's lives in this room. You do. You're obviously passionate about what you do. That passion, your energy, can be overwhelming to others. We need to be a lot more sensitive to how we deliver that information. A lot more sensitive. And my one tip for that is simply going to be to breathe. To breathe and create some type of visual in your head that puts you in a space now, I'm not saying change who you are. I'm not saying be unauthentic. Not everybody's going to like you, and that's okay. If everybody likes you, actually, you have a problem. Someone says to me, Eric, wow, you really offended them. You pissed them off. I'm like, huh? those two? Don't care about those two. Because these other 98 love me. Right? I'm elected president at 51%. <laughs> this is not a likability contest. Let's keep things in perspective. People, more so than ever today, appreciate authenticity. They see right through it. More so than ever, in particular, the younger generation, the 20-somethings. In 10 seconds, bye-bye. Take a deep breath. Before I pick up the phone, I take a deep breath. Before I walk into a meeting, I take a deep breath. 
And what is my visual? My family. My two kids. Literally looking at me going, Daddy, stop complaining. Hey, habits, right? Habits have a, have a tough time going away. It's what we're born with. It's the environments we've been brought up in. It's part of our DNA. And so please, breathe and respect how that content is being delivered. Okay, a little bit of input, a little bit of output, and let's kind of put it all together of how it actually affects your relationships. Because we are in, we're in bad shape today as a society in regards to building really deep relationships. Because it is a race today to how many likes I have on my Facebook page and how many friends I have on LinkedIn. You believe too? I'm a huge LinkedIn user. So, relationships. I can't believe there are people on LinkedIn that, that have a job description, 10,000 plus contacts. Like, am I supposed to be impressed by that? That you have 10,000 plus contacts? It's not about having 10,000 contacts. It's not about having 1,000 contacts. It's about having really deep, rich relationships. So you actually know the people that you are in relation with. And I want to talk a little bit more about that. Quantity is irrelevant. It's about quality. Did you know that there are five to 10 people in your life that will determine 80 to 90% of your wealth. You only need to, five to 10 relationships in your life. I like to call them the WDs, the wealth determiners. Those are rich, deep relationships. And oftentimes, those are not a B to C relationship, those are a B to B relationship. Everyone understands the difference, correct? Business to consumer versus business to business. Right, that business-to-business -business relationship, that chiropractor that can refer you 50 health coaching clients, that's a wealth determiner potentially. B2B, you must respect that side of your network. Five to ten wealth determiners in your life that will be responsible for 80 to 90% of your wealth. I need you to think about that. I also want you to think about that not all of your relationships are created equally. And not just are your relationships not created equally, have you earned the right to even be in relation with them? I'll connect with someone on LinkedIn, or someone will actually reach out to me, and I'll get an automatic response. Thank you so much, Eric, for connecting with me. If you should need SEO services or website services, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, delete. So I unfriended them on LinkedIn. How unauthentic is that? Have they earned the right? Have they earned the right to ask me for business? No. They have not. So you need to think about have you earned the right to ask someone for their business? What is your value proposition to the relationships you are developing? 
value are you providing? How are you changing their life? There's value in your service, correct? Well, that, yes. Is there value in what you do? I'm very serious about that. If you believe here that there's value in what you provide, there's one very important thing you need to know. People pay for value. And you are entitled to make a living. When it comes to your relationships, I also see that most people put everybody just in one big bucket, right? You're in constant contact, you're in MailChimp, I'm not exactly, you know, there's a million CRMs out there in databases, and it's not a one-size-fits-all. People want information that's important to them. That's why this is not a numbers game. It's a quality game. You can't possibly know what 1,500 people need and want. So do me a favor, stop with the, with the one bucket, one size fits all. Here's your database, boom, here's my MailChimp, boom, I send it out to 1,500 people. Kind of insulting. Is you just being lazy? Because let's be honest, building relationships take time. And time is something that we don't necessarily pay that much attention to today. We take really, really for granted. Building real strong relationships that will last a lifetime, that will build tremendous wealth and depth of knowledge for you and your business will take time to develop. Are you willing to take and invest that time in your business? Most people are not. That's why most small businesses fail. So I want you to think about the depth and the quality of those relationships. I also want you to think about a couple different things. It's not about like, you know, because many of you are faster and warmer, you're going to spend time in relationships just because you like them. Liking someone is great for a lunch date. Doesn't mean it's actually going to build your business. This is not a likability contest. It's not. Someone doesn't need to like you to do business with you. It will help. If you read a lot of the sales books, they'll go first step, likability. You know what? If I respect you, I don't necessarily need to like you. I'm not saying, you know, once again, you want to have fun, want to obviously, obviously be in business with people that we like and want to do business with. But respect, to me, from a business perspective, is just as important, if not more important, than being liked. So when you're looking at the depth and the quality, quality of your relationships, I also want you to ask yourself two questions about the people that are in your sphere. Two questions. Do they have the capacity, capacity, What do I mean by capacity? They may not know anybody. You know, if they don't know anybody, they're not going to be five to ten of your wealth determiners. Do they have the capacity? Now, just because someone has the capacity doesn't mean they have the willingness. There are some people 
that just don't like referring other people. They don't want to be responsible if something goes bad. There's no right or wrong to that. But you've got to ask yourself a couple of these questions because there's only so much time in a day. And if you're going to develop rich, long-lasting relationships with people that are going to add tremendous value to your business, I need to know that if I'm going to invest in this relationship, you have the capacity and the willingness to potentially be a business partner of mine. Not about likability. It's a mistake what I like to call our high D's and I's often make, because we like spending time with other people. So, input, taking inventory, taking intellectual inventory, output, energy check on a daily basis, taking a deep breath, slowing things down, allowing yourself time to think and be creative about your business, relationships, who do I want to be in business with? You can choose who you want to be in business with. You have so much to give. Do they deserve your attention? Do they deserve your energy? So, I have a couple of quick questions I'm going to end on here. Do you love what you're doing? Do you, honestly, do you love what you're doing? Do you really believe that you provide value and can actually change someone's life path? You do. pay for value, people pay a lot of money for value. A lot of money for value. Don't ever forget that.